Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, and with video here on YouTube. This week is show number 171. It is uh, mid-December 2018 as I am standing here talking to you today, and we are going to talk about this week the unholy alliance between the Church of Scientology and the Nation of Islam. Now, just purely by coincidence, Leah's show, Scientology in the Aftermath, was about the Nation of Islam this week. I did not realize that that was what was happening. I've been doing research on this show for the last two weeks, putting some things together, and so it was with surprise and uh, and much pleasure that I watched Leah's show this week where she spoke with a former member of the Nation of Islam and another person who was connected with that group, and they discussed the relationship between Scientology and Louis Farrakhan's group. And um, there's a lot to know about the Nation of Islam, way more than could be done in that hour show that Leah and Mike presented. Um, I think that they could have done a few things differently, but overall the show they put together was very, very good and definitely informative. I wanted to speak to this on a, on a broader scale and, and more go back in time a bit more to discuss and explain what the Nation of Islam actually is, because it is a destructive cult. There is zero question in my mind about that. And to see one destructive cult merge with another destructive cult uh, is quite a, it's, it's kind of rare. You don't really see that sort of thing happen. A lot of conjecture, a lot of information, a lot of dot connecting has been going on over the last few years about why this would happen, how it happened. I'm not going to be able to connect all those dots myself because I don't have some information, but I am going to be able to tell you quite a bit about this. Um, In, let's see, 2012 in the New Republic, uh, author Eliza Gray wrote, The first large-scale introduction of Scientology to nation members took place in August 2010, when hundreds of believers from around the country traveled to Rosemont, Illinois, near the nation's headquarters, for a seminar in Dianetics, a foundational belief system of Scientology. There, they were guided through auditing sessions, a kind of hybrid between hypnosis and confession, in which a Scientologist purges painful experiences from his subconscious in the presence of an auditor. At the end of the seminar, Farrakhan told the group he wanted everyone in attendance to become a certified auditor. And that is all very, very true. Um, I actually was, in, as, as anybody who's watched my channel for any length of time knows my history, I was in Twin Cities in Minnesota uh, at the Church of Scientology the day that the Nation of Islam uh, members reported into the church in order to start doing Dianetics auditing and training. And, um, and that was quite an interesting day, and I will tell you more about that and the things that led up to that later in the show. But first, I wanted to actually start talking about um, what the Nation of Islam really is. This is not something I have seen discussed 
um, in detail in any of the shows talking about this connection between Scientology and the Nation of Islam. So I figured I wanted to fill in some holes. Uh, and for me, and I don't think I'm alone in this, uh, a chronological historical look, a, a, a sort of linear look at a group or history is always, for me, very clarifying. Very, it puts things kind of in a sequence and allows me to evaluate the evolution of, of how, you know, or the progress of how something has, has come about or has happened. It's not to say that, you know, when you're talking about a group like Scientology or the Nation of Islam or any group, really, uh, going back to the beginning, going back to their roots is, is a way of clarifying where they came from and what they're about. It's not necessarily that everything that was true then is true now in the same way that with Dianetics, you know, published in 1950, uh, Scientology didn't start for another three years and there have been a number of changes and, and policies written and principles put in by Hubbard over the years that made Scientology now, and by, and by David Miscavige, of course. So that has made Scientology now a very, very different thing from what Scientology was then. It's the same with the Nation of Islam, I am sure, in a number of ways. But without knowing this back history of the Nation of Islam, you might wonder what they're doing and what they're about now, and it might seem kind of strange and weird well, it's not so strange and weird um, when you, oh, it's even stranger and weirder, but <laughs> in a more understandable way when you go back to the beginning. So let's go ahead and do that for a minute. Um, there have been three leaders of the group called the Nation of Islam. It was founded by a man named Wallace Fard Muhammad back in 1930 is when he first started doing things that would lead to uh, what is now the Nation of Islam. He, this was uh, back in um, Detroit, in Michigan, and Wallace Fard Muhammad was a very interesting guy. Just to show you, this is, his, this is a picture of him from, uh, you know, for those of you who are watching with video, this doesn't really look like a black man. <laughs> now, uh, he is not an American, he was not an Englishman, he was not European, but it's actually quite interesting looking at the history of Wallace Fard Muhammad. The FBI and various other groups could never really nail down uh, definitively who he was and where he came from. He was a bit of a mystery man. He appeared in uh, Detroit. He was doing door-to-door -door sales. Uh, and he started talking about the Bible and various aspects of the Bible to his uh, customers who were predominantly African Americans in you know 1930s Detroit. These were people who had uh, either directly or were descendants of people who had migrated out of the South up to the North. They had found um, you know not necessarily the fulfillment of the American dream in the North. Um, the prejudice that existed in the South still existed in the North in a different way, but it was still prejudicial. Um, and they were not really having a very easy time of it. There were economic problems as well. This wasn't all, all of their problems were not uh, just explainable by racial prejudice. Um, you know, as, as with any uh, class of people who are experiencing difficulties, there are always a, a large number of things that are going on and number of factors that contribute to their condition, whether that condition is good or bad. But Wallace Fard Muhammad, uh, started explaining to them that 
um, that there were biblical reasons for why things were the way they were with the African-American community. And then first, uh, from what I understand, and this is a very condensed sort of uh, version of this, um, he was quoting from the Bible, then he started talking more and more um, extremely, I guess you could say. He started making it more personal uh, to the black community and started also moving over towards the Quran, uh, away from the Bible. And he started, what, what, where it started with one or two people and, and him giving these sort of uh, long explanatory stories and, and conjectures about their history and about what they should be doing, uh, all in the direction of how black people should have their own uh, place in the world. Uh, that they were, you know, not from here, that they shouldn't be here in the United States, and uh, that, they sh that there should be a sort of a separatist movement. And this was not uncommon during this time period. Uh, Wallace Fard Muhammad was not the only one pushing this idea. There were, there were a number of uh, leaders in the black community who were talking about this and saying, hey, we should just go somewhere else. We should not be here. We're strangers in a strange land. And... Um, and we, we were never, you know, we were brought here to be slaves. We were never really wanted here. And this is not our homeland. And this is not where we should be. All right. So he was, so Wallace Fart Muhammad was kind of, you know, tacking his message onto that whole idea or concept and, and, and creating his own group around that movement. Um, but he was, he was a bit of a mystery. Now, shortly into him starting to form up groups where they started donating money to get their own space and started having classes. There were so many people who were getting into Muhammad's message and what he was talking about that they wanted to hear it more and more and more. And he, so he started offering seminars and, and workshops and stuff, right? Kind of all uh, the same kind of evolutionary process as what L. Ron Hubbard did with Dianetics. He started by by publishing the book Dianetics, and then people started, you know, knocking his door down, and he started giving seminars and workshops in 1950. Uh, same here with, with Wallace Muhammad back in 1930. So they got their own temple hall, and then, the, you know, he was, again, he started to preach very um, Muslim, Islamic uh, teachings. Among Wallace Muhammad's uh, disciples, uh, at this point, I think that would be an accurate word for what they were, was a man named Robert Poole. And he uh, was very, very invigorated. He got his family involved, uh, brothers, sisters, etc., and uh, started becoming very seriously involved with this organization that was forming up. And Elijah Muhammad was taken under uh, Wallace Fard Muhammad's wing. Now, Elijah Muhammad was the new name that Robert Poole took on. Uh, he was born Robert Poole. He changed it to Elijah Muhammad because one of the dictates that uh, Wallace Fard Muhammad was putting down was that white people were the devil. And not the devil as in Satan, but they, that's what he called them, as the devils, the white devils. And having a white devil name was a kind of form of sacrilege amongst this new group of the Nation of Islam. So uh, Robert Poole changed his name, as did every member of the Nation of Islam, to a more Islamic name. Now, for three or four years, Elijah Muhammad studied directly under uh, Wallace Fard Muhammad and uh, basically was groomed to take over. 
now this is just this is the this is sort of what's known out in the public world, right? Whether this is really what happened or not, I can't say. But the information that we have available to us indicates that Elijah Muhammad was basically tutored or mentored directly with the eye toward taking over the organization. Now, there's a really weird thing that happened in 1934 where uh, Wallace Fard Muhammad went out to the airport in Detroit, got on a plane, and took off. And that was the last that Elijah Muhammad said he ever saw of him. And we have no idea what happened to Wallace Fard Muhammad at that point. He disappeared, and no one knows what happened to him. Uh, there's, again, FBI tried late, many years later to track him down, to, to figure this all out. And according to what I could find, there's nothing really beyond conjecture as to who he was, where he came from, uh, and where he went. But what is known for sure, what actually happened, is that in 1934, Elijah Muhammad ended up taking over control of the Nation of Islam, and he led it all the way through to 1975. Uh, Elijah Muhammad, interesting guy. Uh, I won't get into more specifics about him particularly, because it's not really important to what I'm trying to cover here. Um, but I do want to get into the belief system of the Nation of Islam because this is very eye-opening in the same way that the Xenu narrative is very eye-opening about Scientology. And again, this isn't something that really gets talked about a lot, and I was a little surprised by it um, because it's pretty, their belief system is, is pretty out there. Now, the belief system, I want to stress here, is not the reason that I think the Nation of Islam is a destructive cult any more than the Xenu story is the reason why I think Scientology is a destructive cult. Belief systems are just belief systems. They're just ideas people have. I don't really care about people's beliefs except for the way that belief measures what people do, uh, you know, has a very, has a very big effect on, on people's actions. And when you have a, an abusive sort of relationship between a leader and his followers, his or her followers, and a sort of codependency between these things, and, your, and there's other characteristics of this, such as the us versus them, indoctrination, and the, you know, our group is the only group that has any truth. Everybody else is filled with lies and deception, and they don't know what they're talking about. You know, these kind of characteristics are what make a group a destructive cult, uh, especially when there's this insularity and exclusivity to the group, and they, um, you know, will even... Uh, come to the place where they will push, be pushing for, um, you know, actions to be taken against those who are not part of their in-group, even violent actions, um, that's where you get into a destructive cult, and that's what the NOI does. Um, but we will, but don't take my words out of context. I'm not saying that all of, you know, the nation of Islam are all about, uh, you know, violence in the streets or something. It's, it's more subtle than that. So let's go ahead and talk about their belief system so we can clarify what this is all about. Basics of their belief system are that uh, black men or colored people are the original men. That, and that's true enough, according to evolutionary biology. Uh, we were dark-skinned people to start with, as far as I understand it, and have our roots in Africa. So on that point, they are correct. <laughs> However, things take a sharp turn to the right uh, when it gets into the, the, the how of, of where did white people come from. 
Okay, so according to the Nation of Islam's dogma and lore, there was a black man named Jacob, and he was a scientist, and he created white people through the process of what is called grafting, and this took 600 years to do. So this was sort of a uh, breeding program, you could say, and I'll go into the specifics of that in just a second. Uh, now, Jacob lived 8,400 years ago. He was born 20 miles outside of Mecca. He did this work, this grafting breeding program, on an island called Pelon, which is in the Asian Sea, also known as uh, Patmos from Revelations 1.9. This is all according to Nation of Islam scriptures. So now, let me just read directly from these scriptures. This uh, is a printout of a book called The Supreme Wisdom Lessons by Master Fard Muhammad to his servant, the Most Honorable Elijah Muhammad, for the lost found nation of Islam in North America. They call themselves the lost found nation because they were lost, and then now they are found. So this, uh, these wisdom lessons are all a, a booklet that is a foundational to the Nation of Islam's beliefs. And there's a number of lessons in here and things that they're supposed to memorize and know and learn. And there's a lot of uh, stuff in here. There's a lot of very, very interesting stuff. Um, some of it fairly alarming, actually, which we will cover here. So the story, but I'm going to skip to this uh, question. There's a series of questions and answers in here that cover certain of these uh, dogmatic principles. And this one, the question 28, and what kind of rules and regulations, including all laws enforced while manufacturing the devil? That's, I'm just reading what it says. It doesn't necessarily, some of these things do not make grammatical sense. Some of them, the capitalization is odd. The spelling and grammar is odd in some places. So I'm just going to give it to you straight from what it says here. Um, okay, so the answer to this question about laws enforced while manufacturing the devil. Okay, again, keep in mind, this isn't Satan or Lucifer. This is white people. That's the devil that is being talked about here. The devil is made from the original people by grafting, by separating the germs, it says here. Now, keep in mind also that this is written back in the 30s. So, answer, Jacob's first rule was to see that all his followers were healthy, strong, and good breeders. Now, again, Jacob, black man, he's got all these followers. If not, he sent them back, all that he found that was not good in multiplying, and that they should marry at the age of 16. Next, Jacob gave his people the law on birth control to be enforced while manufacturing the devil. That was to destroy the alike and save the unlike, which means kill the black babies and save the brown babies. This law was given to the doctors, the ministers, the nurses, and cremator. The doctor's law was to examine all that marry. And this was his law, that anyone desiring to marry must first be qualified by the doctor, and in turn, he qualified or disqualified them to the minister. The minister would marry only the ones that were unlike. The nurse's law was to kill the black babies at birth, by sticking a needle in the brain of the babies or feed it to some wild beast 
and tell the mother that her baby was an angel baby and that it was only taken to heaven. And someday when the mother dies, her baby would have secured her a home in heaven. But save all the brown ones and tell their mother that she was lucky that her baby was a holy baby and that she should take good care of her baby, educate it, and that someday it would be a great man. All nurses, doctors, and ministers, Jacob put them under a death penalty who failed to carry out the law as it was given to them. Also, the cremator who would burn the black babies when the nurse brought it to him. Also, death for them if they reveal the secret. He also had other rules and laws which are not mentioned in this lesson. And on that note, there's an oral tradition of secret teachings within the Nation of Islam that I am not obviously privy to. White people are not even allowed in the temples and mosques, or I should say mosques, of the Nation of Islam and are certainly not privy to the secret teachings within those walls to the high, at the highest levels of the Nation of Islam. And I'm not aware right now of anyone who has come out and dished on what all those secret teachings are. Uh, so I can't speak to the mother then to say, read what it says here. Everything I just said to you or read to you here is printed in exactly verbatim from this book. <clears throat> Further says, tell us what and how the devil is made. The devil is made from the original people by grafting, by separating the germs. In the black man, there exists two germs, one a black germ and one a brown germ. Jacob, with his law on birth control, separated the brown germ from the black man and grafted it into a white by destroying the black germ. After following this process for 600 years, the germ became white and weak and was no more original. Also, by thinning the original blood, it became weak and it is no more the same. Thus, this is the way Jacob made the devil. So, what I just read to you is literally the truth according to the nation of Islam as to where we, white people, come from and why black people were the original good people of the planet who were literally, physically, biologically corrupted in order to create the white man who then went off to Europe and lived in caves and yet then somehow uh, grew to, to form a civilization and become the leaders of the superpowers of the world and subjugate and uh, enslave the black man. So there are so many problems with this. Uh, it, this is, you know, obviously religious dogma in the, in the same strain as the Xenu narrative or the Jesus narrative or, uh, you know, the Islamic narrative. I mean, all of these things are just full of logic holes and plot holes and big enough you could, you know, drive a tank through them. Um, so this, you know, this is just pure nonsense, but this is what the 20,000 plus nation uh, members believe. So, uh, yeah, black people being the original men and righteous, they believe that, they, that the black people have rightful ownership of the earth and have been enslaved by white men. And Farrakhan now, who's the current leader of the Nation of Islam, says that the, um, 
that the years of subjugation that the black people have been put through, including the enslavement for 400 years, is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. They actually take quotes about the um, Babylonian exile of the Jews and they apply them to the black people and say that's, you know, why those those, uh, scriptures apply to us. And so us being uh, taken from Africa, enslaved, being stuck in America for all these years, that's actually biblical prophecy. And now is our time to, um, you know, break those chains, come forward and no longer be enslaved and have, and take our rightful place as the leaders of the world. Fascinating uh, sort of backstory there. In fact, let me read you a few more quotes from this booklet here that I made some notes about so you get Uh, more of a picture here, and this isn't just Chris Shelton's interpretation of it. Quote, we must know and be able to prove at all times to the new converts that the lessons that our Savior, Allah, gave us to study and learn is the fulfillment of the prophecies of all the former prophets concerning the beginning of the devils and the ending of the civilization and of our enslavement by the devils and present time of our delivery from the devils by our Savior Allah, praise his holy name. There is no God but Allah. How that Allah would separate us from the devils and then destroy them, and change us into a new and perfect people, and fill the earth with freedom, justice, and equality, as it was filled with wickedness, and making we, the poor lost founds, the perfect rulers." Okay, so like I said, you got to struggle a little bit with the grammar of some of this, but basically saying here that the black people are meant by prophecy to take over the world. Uh, and he also says, quote, the register must be clear of devil's names. Remember I mentioned earlier that there must not be any devil names amongst the nation of Islam, which is why they literally changed their names. As they said uh, in this book here, devils must stay away. The restrictive law of Islam is our success at any time. Anyone who fails to be 100% to the law shall be dismissed from his or her post. The earth belongs to the original black man, and knowing that the devil was wicked and there would not be any peace among them, he put him out in the worst part of the earth and kept the best part preserved for himself ever since he made it. The best part is in Arabia at the holy city, Mecca. The colored man, or Caucasian, is the devil. The original man is the god and owner of the earth and knows every square inch of it and has chosen for himself the best part. Jacob was an original man and was the father of the devil. He taught the devils to do this devilishment. Why did Muhammad and any Muslim murder the devil? What is the duty of each Muslim in regards to four devils. What reward does a Muslim receive by presenting the four devils at one time? Now this, that, I'm just, everything I just read there is a direct quote. Now I'm saying that this four devils thing is very, very interesting because there was uh, actually a sociologist, um, I believe his name was Benyon, back in the 1930s, who wrote a paper for the American Journal of, Psych- of Sociology about this new cult, which was called the voodoo cult. And it was called the voodoo cult because of human sacrifice. And we're talking about the nation of Islam now. 
um, then there was at least one or two reported cases in the study that, the, that uh, Benyon wrote <clears throat> about murder and human sacrifice. And this was um, thought to be or connected to this passage in their dogma about how um, Muhammad and any Muslim has to murder the devil. So we're actually talking about violence here right in their scriptures. And on this point, it goes on to say, quote, Because he is 100% wicked and will not keep and obey the laws of Islam, his ways and actions are like a snake of the grafted type. So Muhammad learned that he could not reform the devils, so they had to be murdered. All Muslims will murder the devil. They know he is a snake, and also, if he be allowed to live, he would sting someone else. Each Muslim is required to bring four devils. And by bringing and presenting four at one time, his reward is a button to wear on the lapel of his coat. Also, a free transportation in the holy city, Mecca, to see Brother Muhammad. Now, there's another, I mentioned earlier, these were in the forms of questions and answers. So that was the answer to the question of why did Muhammad and Muslims murder the devil? So you can see here, they're very, very much not just saying live and let live or let's be separate nations. They're talking about murder here. And they then uh, later on in the passages, can you reform devil? And again, I'm just reading this directly. This is a direct quote. Can you reform devil? All the prophets have tried to reform him, parentheses, devil, but were unable. So they have agreed that it cannot be done unless we graft him back to the original man, which takes 600 years. So instead of losing time grafting him back, they have decided to take him off the planet, who numbers, who numbers only one to every 11 original people. So the white people being in the minority, I suppose, as written here, just get rid of them. Uh, then it says, would you hope to live to see that the gods will take the devil into hell in the very near future? Yes, I fast and pray, Allah, in the name of his prophet, W.D. Fard, that I see the hereafter when Allah, in his own good time, takes the devil off our planet. The reward will be peace and happiness. So I want to stress all of this because not only is this a ridiculous creation story, literally a creation story of white people, but it's a story that has in its very foundation the enforced separation of blacks and whites, uh, a zero tolerance policy between them, and uh, the us versus them is abundantly clear here. And the fact that the white people actually have to be gotten rid of entirely. Not compromised with, not live in another land, not, okay, well, you know, we don't really get along, so let's just agree to disagree. No. They are asserting in the Nation of Islam that all white people must die. It's right in their scriptures. I just read it to you. This is not my opinion. So... That's where they're coming from. <laughs> Pretty interesting that they would align themselves with Scientology, an extremely white group of people. Uh, Farrakhan has gone on to say that L. Ron Hubbard is somebody who allows someone to be 
uh, whose techniques and methods through Dianetics will make that person no longer so much of a devil. I don't have the exact quote. I didn't look it up for this, but I'm just uh, sort of throwing that out there, that he's sort of rationalized that L. Ron Hubbard was somehow a, uh, a, a white man that somehow did some good somehow and can somehow, and that, that his works can benefit the people of the nation, so therefore that's why they should get together. It sounds strained because it is strained. It's very weird. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. None of this creation myth makes any scientific sense, but just from a purely logical point of view, just from a, a clear thinking, rational point of view, the things that Farrakhan is saying about L. Ron Hubbard and about Scientologists do not at all jive with the actual basic foundational dogma of the Nation of Islam, uh, as I just read to you. It's not difficult to find this stuff, by the way, on the internet. Look it up for yourself and verify what I'm saying. In the notes to this podcast are all the sources I used in looking up this information. So you can, uh, li the links are down there and you can check them out in the show notes. That's at sensiblyspeaking.com, not on my YouTube channel. I'm not going to put all the sources there in the description section, but I do put a link in the YouTube video to the, the, the blog, the sensiblyspeaking.com website, so you can look them up yourself. Now, coming forward in time, we get to um, another interesting point in terms of the destructive cult aspect of the Nation of Islam, and that is Malcolm X. Now, he came along in the 50s and 60s. He was a powerful proponent of the Nation of Islam. He was converted in prison. There's a whole movie about Malcolm X. There's an autobiography of Malcolm X that was co-written or, or written by uh, Alex Haley, uh, who wrote Roots. Um, and Malcolm X was a very, very interesting figure, um, very controversial, very divisive. He went all in on the Nation of Islam's beliefs, and he preached them from the heart for years. And he was a very, very moving, motivational speaker uh, for anybody. I mean, anybody who listens to him can see the power and charisma of the man. He broke from the Nation of Islam's teachings because he was too good at his job. And at least if you believe his autobiography and the, the movie put together by Spike Lee, Malcolm X was uh, somebody that uh, was generating a lot of jealousy, a lot of hatred and animosity directed to him because of uh, the other people within the Nation of Islam who were um, part of the leadership or directly under the leadership of Elijah Muhammad were not happy with what um, Malcolm X was, uh, the, the popularity that he was engendering through his talking and speaking. And, um, and so also, Elijah Muhammad was having out of wedlock sex and making babies with women uh, within the nation. And that was against the rules. And so Malcolm X started having a real crisis of faith. And he ended up breaking away from the nation and started his own group. But almost immediately after, I mean, not very long after he did that, his own people from the Nation of Islam killed him. Uh, now, whether that was ordered by Elijah Muhammad directly or not is really pretty inconsequential at this point. The fact that his own people turned on him and murdered him for the heresy of breaking away from the Nation of Islam, even though he still preached the same basic core dogma of separation and of equal rights for black people, this was all in the 60s during the Civil Rights Movement, 
Um, even though he was on the same basic line as them, he broke away from them, he betrayed them, and therefore he had to die. And that is what they did. They executed him. So um, that is just more demonstration, as far as I'm concerned, of the fanatical nature of the Nation of Islam and that they are very, very, very culty. Now, coming all the way up to present now, um, there is <laughs> there's a lot of stuff I want to cover here, and it might seem a bit random. We'll just kind of go through it based on my notes here. Um, the Church of Scientology has created a group called STAND, uh, which is a, the most hypocritical, ridiculous idea ever because Scientology is one of the most intolerant, bigoted organizations in the world, uh, matched really only by groups like the Nation of Islam. Um, but they have put together this stand website and group that's just sort of supposed to stand against religious bigotry and discrimination. And I'm sure you guys uh, who are listening to this are, are familiar with it already. You can find them on Twitter. They're, they're, they're pretty silly. But this group, the stand group, is not saying or doing anything about the Nation of Islam's open bigotry, racism, and anti-Semitism. Following the massacre of 11 Jewish people at the Tree of Life synagogue in, synagogue in Pittsburgh, Stand expressed solidarity with the Jewish community. However, while Scientology claims their sympathies are with the Jewish faith, they have this long-term partnership with a group of the most hateful, anti-Semitic people in America, the Nation of Islam. I mean, short of flat-out Nazis, you're not going to find another group that is more anti-Semitic than the Nation of Islam. Just yesterday, they have tweets in their feed, this is in the stand group, quoting Rabbi Ben Elazer, quote, For us Jews, it is a privilege to have the presence of a survivor of the Shoah, which is the Holocaust. I introduce to you Dr. Elke Preber Franca, president of the Association of Jewish Women of Dresden. Hashtag Shoah, hashtag Holocaust, hashtag Berlin, hashtag Interfaith. Now that comes from Stand, from, from the Church of Scientology. They're tweeting that out, that they stand with the Jews in remembrance of the Holocaust uh, there in Germany. And two tweets, but then, okay, so this is in their Twitter feed. Two tweets earlier in that same feed from yesterday. Uh, they tweeted out support of the Nation of Islam. Quote, no surprise that hashtag Disney, hashtag AETV, hashtag Leah Remini denigrate African-American Muslims. Coming soon, Florida pastor Remini Powell, who proclaims Islam a messed up religion. Hashtag bigotry, hashtag hate. All right, well, I'm going to say right now, Islam is a messed up religion. I've done enough study of it at this point that I can definitely say that. And it is not any form of bigotry or hatred to say that. To, fi to find fault or criticism in any religion is not a statement of hatred against that religion. Hatred is a whole different thing. Hatred is all about destruction and antagonist, you know, and, and destroy. it's about destroying things. Uh, pointing out something wrong with a group's dogma or belief system or ideas in an effort to improve them by getting them to stop being so animo you know, full of animosity or hatred or, or whatever, that's, it, that in itself is not bigotry or hatred, okay? I, I, obvious, this is all fairly obvious. 
So stand is having their cake and eating it too. They're saying that, the, that they stand with the Jews in an interfaith platform or message. But then they also say that they stand with the nation of Islam and that they're against anyone criticizing the nation because that's clearly bigotry and hatred. Well, it's not bigotry and hatred when you call out bigotry and hatred for what it is, right? I mean, we can just go round and round on all these labels, but the intent is clear. Uh, now, even according to Islamic scholars, the nation of Islam does not represent mainstream Islamic beliefs. Hell, according to the nation of Islam, they don't represent the majority of Muslims because if you're not an African-American, the nation of Islam is not at all interested in what you have to say or think. In May of this year, Farrakhan warned his listeners about, quote, satanic Jews who have infected the whole world with poison and deceit, end quote. <clears throat> Farrakhan also claimed that contemporary Jews are responsible for promoting child molestation, misogyny, police brutality, and sexual assault, among other social ills. In addition, he asserted that contemporary Judaism is nothing but, quote, a system of tricks and lies, end quote, which Jews study in order to learn how to dominate non-Jews. He also said that the false Jew will lead you to filth and indecency. That's who runs show business. That's who runs the record industry. That's who runs television. <laughs> Farrakhan alleged that Jews often force aspiring actors to submit to anal sex. Quote, do you know that many of us who go to Hollywood seeking a chance have to submit to anal sex and all kind of debauchery before they give you a little part, he asked. It's called the casting couch. See, that's Jewish power. And he points to somebody like Harvey Weinstein, who is obviously of Jewish origin, to as evidence of his claim. Now, it is true that Harvey Weinstein is a disgusting, sick individual who is having his comeuppance now uh, for his years of uh, sexual molestation and assault. And that's very, very true. But to represent one man as representative of all Jewish people and say every single Jewish person on the planet is an unholy awful, horrible person who's trying to bring about the destruction of everybody who's not Jewish is a bit rich. It's a bit much, you know? So a bit of a slippery slope argument specifically. Farrakhan also said that President Barack Obama was under Jewish influence when he advocated for the legalization of same-sex marriage. Yes, in case you were wondering, uh, the LGBTQ community is not at all uh, blessed or approved of by the Nation of Islam. Marriage equality, Farrakhan informed his audience, is satanic. On October 14th, 2018, Farrakhan said, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm anti-termite, during an address to mark the 23rd anniversary of the Million Man March. He then tweeted that out after his speech, said, I'm not an anti-Semite, I'm anti-termite. And the comments by his followers and supporters make it all too clear that they do very, very clearly understand the anti-Semitic message all too well and they fully stand behind and support Farrakhan. All right, so 
Let's take a look now at Scientology and the Nation of Islam because we've established that the nation is a destructive cult with an insane belief system that is completely holy and utterly intolerant of anything not African American. And uh, they are classified by the ACLU as a hate group and I think you can see at this point why that would be. So they get together with Scientology, the widest religion on the planet. How does that make any sense? Well, the relationship between Scientology and NOI goes back nearly two decades. Farrakhan was introduced to Scientology in the late 1990s. Scientology leader David Miscavige expressed interest in attracting black people. And by 2006, Scientologists honored Farrakhan at the Ebony Awakening Awards. Now, how did this all start? Well, there's a lot of conjecture. There's a lot of conjecture because we don't have all the background information on this. But basically, um, Tony Muhammad, Minister Tony Muhammad, who is the Western Regional Representative of the Nation of Islam, appears to have been the initial entry point via Alfredi Johnson, who is not a member of the Nation of Islam, but he's a Christian minister, a uh, black man from Los Angeles, Inglewood. Uh, and he... Alfredi Johnson connected up with Scientology um, through or uh, started up this world literacy crusade. There's a lot of ins and outs of all of this, and I'm not going to pretend to try to break it all down here, other than to say that these are where the nation first got, made its first foray into connecting up with Scientology. Alfredi Johnson knew Tony Muhammad, and somehow those connections were made, and um, and they connected to the Church of Scientology itself. Now, it's noteworthy, though, and this was something that uh, actually Jeffrey Augustine pointed out to me, and I thought, wow, that's actually worth, worth mentioning, that Farrakhan himself has never been photographed at a Scientology center or with David Miscavige. The two actually seem to be avoiding being seen together in public despite their alliance between their organizations. Jeffrey Augustine, by the way, on his Scientology Money Project site, has done some really championship work on the Nation of Islam, and you should check out his site for information about the, the alliance between Scientology and the nation. The Tampa Bay Times reported on October 18, 2010, that in March, some Nation of Islam members, including Farrakhan, toured an anti-psychiatry museum in Los Angeles run by the Scientology group, the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. Farrakhan's reaction to the museum showed interest in what he saw. Now, this is interesting because we have a direct quote on this, but it's not from Farrakhan. It's from Tony Muhammad, who said, quote, When the minister went through and saw the evolution of psychiatry, and then he saw how they are using the law, and how they are using almost every human emotion and making it into a disease, the minister said, I pray to my Allah that he blesses me to destroy all of them because these people are impacting not just black people, but all of humankind, said Tony Muhammad, a Nation of Islam representative. In a taped August 22nd sermon, also on the website, Farrakhan referred to Scientologists as our friends, sprinkled his talk with Scientology terms, and appeared to say he wants Nation of Islam members to study Scientology. Earlier that month, the website reported, a Nation of Islam contingent visited Scientology's Clearwater campus and raved about its stay at the Fort Harrison Hotel. Group members also said they received nervousists, which 
uh, those of us who know about Scientology know is a Scientology procedure to ease nerve pain in a person's body. Um, Scientologists say the procedure gets the body in communication with the thetan or spirit, relaxing muscles and straightening the spine. All right, so, um, so there we have the beginnings of this connection. How, there's rumors, there's various pieces of information that, um, Louis, that Louis Farrakhan received some Dianetics auditing himself. He was suffering from, I think, cancer or some other uh, terminal illnesses, or, or not terminal, but uh, physical ailments. And he, um, maybe through Tony Muhammad, he was sort of told about this Dianetics stuff and that it might help. And he went and did it at Celebrity Center and maybe it did help him. I, those are all conjecture points. We don't really know for sure. At least I haven't been able to verify uh, with evidence and facts, you know, that that actually went down. But somehow in the 1990s, Farrakhan connected up with Scientology Isaac Hayes at that time was making noises to David Miscavige about, hey, where the hell are all the black Scientologists, man? What's going on here? Why am I only surrounded by white people all the time? Now, Isaac Hayes was not a member of the nation, but he was bothered by the, you know, overwhelming majority of white people around him in Scientology, and he wanted black people to get the gains and benefits that Isaac Hayes felt he had gotten from Scientology. So that kind of pressure being brought on David Miscavige and this opportunity with Farrakhan apparently came together and these two groups decided to form some kind of an alliance. I can't help wonder if there aren't financial things going on behind the scenes with these two groups. And I've spoken with my good friend Jeff Wassell, I've spoken with Jeffrey Augustine about this, and they both concur that there's probably some financial shenanigans and hanky-panky going on behind the scenes. Again, it's all conjecture because we, can't, we don't have access to their financial records or how they go about doing the business that they do, but we do know that the Nation of Islam is a fairly rich organization, and we know Scientology, of course, has billions in reserves. For such a small group, they have a tremendous amount of money. The NOI, on the other hand, has received money in the past from Libya to the tune of millions of dollars. And in the 1980s, uh, Gaddafi actually wanted to give them, or sorry, in the 1990s, he actually wanted to give the nation a billion dollars. So the nation's also got its own income streams. And so I can't help but think, given that Scientology is all about the money, that there isn't some kind of, you know, other thing going on behind the scenes there. But again, that's all conjecture. Now I want to tell you about when I was a Scientologist and a Sea Org member in Twin Cities and the nation actually showed up to start doing services. At the time, we were given a briefing sheet, and I really wish I had kept this because I could not obviously find a copy of it anywhere online. This was a very confidential in-house series of directives um, that we were sent a few days before the Nation of Islam showed up to start doing services. And how it went down is we were told that, um, that this seminar had happened in Illinois, that Farrakhan was fully on board with Dianetics, and that they were going to become part of, you know, what we were doing. However, this was soon tempered by this directive that came down that said they were only going to be doing Dianetics. They wanted to achieve the state of clear, and they were going to do it through book one auditing. Dianetics is called book one in Scientology because it was the first book. Um, 
book one auditing, according to the methods and techniques of Scientology as it is now practiced, it is impossible, technically, to go clear without using an e-meter in Scientology procedures. That's just how it is. I could explain all the details as to why that is, but it's not really important for what this podcast is about. Um, the, the fact is that you, if, if you're going to do Scientology, if you're going to go to the state of clear, you're going to need to get some auditing on an e-meter and you're going to have to do something called a clear certainty rundown and that's the only thing that can verify that you're clear. You can do hundreds of hours of Dianetics auditing and get to the point where you think, okay, I think I've gone clear now, but you're going to have to do the Scientology procedures to verify it and, and have that acknowledged. So, right away, me knowing that, I thought there was something odd in the way that this was being presented because we were being told that these guys were very, very interested in the Nation of Islam and going clear and that they wanted to do Dianetics and that was how they were going to get to clear. And I thought, really? Has nobody explained all this to them? Well, of course, the only person that could make an exception like that and make a promise like that to, say, Louis Farrakhan would be David Miscavige. So, you know, because anybody else, uh, that they would not have the power or authority to make a call like that. Uh, to say, oh yeah, guys, nation, come on in. We're going to train you up on Dianetics and you guys are going to go clear as the, you know, the, the summer day, you know. Uh, but that's what they promised. So the instruction sheets that we received was about nine or ten printed pages. And it had a whole little indoctrination about what the Nation of Islam is, but it didn't say anything about what I just told you guys. I mean, I didn't know about any of this stuff until I did research for this podcast. We were told that they were simply a, an, an organization of African Americans who were interested in self-improvement and empowerment and equal rights. And, um, and so we kind of thought, well, if they're for equal rights and, and everybody getting along together, then that makes sense. <laughs> Except we were also told that there were very, very specific do's and don'ts in, in terms of how we were to act around Nation of Islam members. And these were really, really different and really, really interesting for Scientologists because these included things like we could not swear around them at all, not even a little bit. No swear words. Now, if you know Scientology, you know that Scientologists talk like a bunch of drunken sailors. I mean, they are really liberal with their use of swear words. So we had to curb all that, uh, and we had to, and, and I actually personally briefed all the staff of the Twin Cities Church of Scientology on all of this. Um, I, again, I wish I could remember all nine pages, but it's, you know, it was, it was eight years ago, and uh, so I don't remember it all. But I do remember the swearing thing. We were uh, directed uh, in all big, bold, capital letters, do not try to sell these people anything other than the Dianetics book and the Dianetics seminar or the Hubbard Dianetics auditor course. And they were getting those services and books at a discount. There was a special package rate that they were getting that was a discounted rate, not an inflated rate, okay? Uh, 
we didn't know how it was that we were able to do this special package, but we were told this is how it is, and so this is what we did. I think the Dynetics book was 20 bucks or something, and the uh, which I think is regular price. Um, but the courses, there was a Di- the Dynetics seminar is a two-day review of certain parts of the book Dianetics, and then you twin up with a person and you do what's called co-auditing, cooperative auditing, and you just run Dianetics on each other. One person gets a session and then they turn around and audit the other person on it, and then they turn around and back and forth and back and forth. With Dianetics, the subject matter of the session will be different from every single session to the next. You, the procedure is the same, but what you're going to cover in the session is going to be different because it's going to depend on your personal experiences, life experiences. So you could go back and forth running Dianetics on another person um, for hundreds of hours, theoretically at least. It gets a bit tiresome after a while, but you could do it. And this is what the nation was showing up to do. Now, after the seminar, you usually do the Hubbard Dynetics Auditor course. It's a thicker, bigger course. You read the entire book, Dynetics, from cover to cover, and you practice and drill doing auditing so that you can audit anybody with Dynetics, not just another person you're twinning up with. So, ideally, they were going to do, if I remember right, they were going to do that HDA course, but we found, when they all came in to do their services that day, that many of them couldn't afford the HDA. These were some broke people. So that was another interesting thing about this because Scientology positions itself as a religious philosophy that intends to make the able more able. And that's code for getting people in who have money and getting them to spend lots and lots of money in Scientology so as to make them more rich and more able, you see, able being the, 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 the key word there. Um, so having people show up who couldn't even afford the packages, the cut rate packages we were offering them, was a little bit surprising. These were people who showed up well-dressed, bow ties, full skirts and dresses and stuff for the women, um, jackets and suits for the men. I mean, these were, these were people who paid attention to their appearance. They were quiet. They were reserved. Uh, they were not very talkative. I later, of course, learned that this was because of arrogance, not because of shyness. I thought that they were kind of shy or reticent, but no, they were just, uh, they weren't down with white people. And of course, when they walked into the Church of Scientology in Minnesota, <laughs> there was nothing but white people there. I think there was, um, I think there were two or three black people in, uh, involved in the church at, in Minnesota the entire time I was there. So they all showed up. Um, so we were not to reg them for anything more than what the services were that they were going to buy. And I actually had to stretch that a little bit in order to get them all onto service. We were told that the local mosque had about 30 members who were going to have 25 to 30 people who were going to show up. And we were, and this was going to be great. I was really looking forward to it because my job there at that time was getting people into the organization and onto services. So I thought this was going to be great, right? I was keeping track every week of how many people were doing services. And this was going to bump it up. I mean, an additional 30 people, we were wondering where we were going to find room for them. This was before 
the Twin Cities Church had opened up in its current new big, huge quarters. We were in a little tiny office space. And I thought, man, we're going to be, we're going to have them out in the hallways. This is going to be great. We're going to have so many people here. It's going to be awesome. Well, actually only about half that many showed up. I think in the end we had about 17 or 18 people show up. And this was fine. This was good. But they, like I said, they couldn't even all afford to pay for the services. So when they showed up, if they could at least buy the book, we would allow them to go into the course room and start. Because I didn't want to be the guy who said, reported up lines, yeah, we had to kick five of them out because they couldn't afford their services. That would have been like a very, very bad thing as, as I saw it. So we let them all in the course room. We, we had it all set up that they were going to show up at a certain time. We were going to invoice them and get them in the classroom and everything was going to be beautiful. Well, it didn't quite work out that beautifully. They were late. There were schedule problems. And we then found out over the days, over the next few days, that there were conflicts within the Nation of Islam about doing this Dianetic stuff at all. And that was the very first inkling I had that there was some kind of division going on within the Nation of Islam about this connection with Dianetics. I eventually came to learn that there were a whole group of people in, in, within the nation who did not trust L. Ron Hubbard, did not trust Scientology, did not want to have anything to do with this, and thought Farrakhan had gone off his rocker. And were totally separating from this and saying, no, this is wrong. We're not doing this. This is not according to our principles. And I, as I read to you earlier in this podcast, they're not according to their principles. I mean, the dogma of the Nation of Islam says, you, thou shalt not, you know, fornicate, communicate, coordinate, work with, cooperate with white people. And that's exactly what Farrakhan was doing. So, so there was some really, really heavy protesting going on within the nation over this. And I, of course, we didn't know anything about that. I just got little snippets of it in trying to call some of these nation members who had not shown up and asked them what's going on. I had a hard time reaching them, a very hard time reaching them. And I was very, very heavily discouraged from going down to the local mosque to find out what was going on. I was told, yeah, no, you can't do that. And I didn't realize at the time how racist the Nation of Islam was. So I didn't know I wouldn't be allowed in the mosque if I went down there and showed up, you see. This was talked about in Leah's show, right? White people cannot go into those mosques. And there's only been a couple Scientologists that they've made exceptions for. I wasn't going to be one of those Scientologists in Twin Cities. So... Um, Anyway, so I sort of detected that there was trouble in paradise with this, but I was so busy trying to just get people in that I just sort of parked that to the side and just kind of kept doing my work. And the nation really didn't end up being a very big contributing part of Scientology in Minnesota. I think only a couple of them finished that Dianetics seminar and then started actually auditing and then wanted to do more Scientology. And what happened internally within our group was at first we were saying, no Scientology for the nation. That's not what they're here for. That's not what we're about. That's not what we're trying to do. So do not try to sell them any Scientology. That was the orders we had. It was the polar opposite of every other order we had ever received ever about anything. So it was pretty weird. 
But we went, okay, I get it. That's what they're doing. So we're going we're gonna to follow that order. But as time marched on, some of these nation members started asking about Scientology. They started wondering what this bridge to total freedom was all about. They started asking questions about the rest of Scientology. And we were starting to ask, what do we do with this? You know, because we were like, yeah, no, you know, Scientology, just carry on with your Dianetics. It's all good, which was so weird. But we were doing that. And then we started asking up lines, what do we do with this? What if, what if they're asking about it? And then we were told, well, look, if they're directly asking about it, sure, answer their questions, help them out. If they want to buy Scientology services, of course they can, but don't encourage it, don't push it on them, don't foist it off on them. So that was how we treated the Nation of Islam. So it was very, very interesting uh, opposite world for them. Now... We come forward a little bit, and I'm going to start moving toward wrapping this up. Um, Tony Muhammad received the IAS Freedom Medal, and that is Scientology's highest honor. That happened in November 2017. Now, of course, if you think about it, the medal really should have gone to Louis Farrakhan. But Tony Muhammad seems to be Farrakhan's point man on Scientology, and I don't know that he's realize that he's actually fully positioned as the scapegoat if anything goes wrong with the Scientology-NOI relationship. Farrakhan has already gone in on Dianetics and has said from the stage that he approves of it and he wants his members doing it and that L. Ron Hubbard's a good guy. But I believe that Farrakhan could pull back from that. He'd have some difficulty extricating himself from the alliance, but he could do it. And he could blame Tony Muhammad, and he could just scapegoat the hell out of the guy if he wanted to and say that, you know, Muhammad had lied to him or something and blah, blah, blah. You know how cult leaders will do what they do. They, they're professionals at scapegoating other people for their mistakes. Um, so he could pull that off. So I think that's why Farrakhan got the medal and not, or why Farrakhan didn't get the medal. And again, also, like I mentioned earlier, that Farrakhan and Miscavige had never been seen in public together, and Farrakhan does not connect himself with Scientology physically or in photographs. The two groups are very, very different in many ways, but they find common ground on conspiracy theories and on money. Uh, for example, why did Tony Muhammad win that Freedom Medal? Well, according to an April 2018 article in the New Republic, Quote, Tony Muhammad travels the world showing a documentary on vaccines claiming they cause autism, end quote. So, anti-vax, that's 100% Scientology. There are many, many Scientologists who go in on the anti-vax conspiracy theory. The, as I've laid out many, many times, there are tons of conspiracy theories in Scientology, and apparently there are tons of conspiracy theories in the Nation of Islam. These two things are where they very much find common ground. Uh, they're also both UFO cults. According to rumor, at least, the, um, the oral tradition of, spirit, of, uh, of, of the Nation of Islam's core beliefs include life on other planets, and some kind of um, civilization or, or, or ties with, with uh, extraterrestrial civilizations and groups. 
Um, there's a lot to that, uh, or there's there's a lot to, more to the Nation of Islam's dogma about stuff like that that I didn't really get into here or didn't want to get into in a lot of detail because I think I laid out the most important parts of the dogma already. But they definitely have more common ground on Xenu-type you know, Xenu stuff. Not Xenu directly, not that narrative, but the fact that there are, you know, again, civilizations on other planets. Um, a few months after winning his award, Tony Muhammad delivered a lecture to NOI members titled, Why the Jews Hated Jesus and Why the Jews Hate Farrakhan where he praised Farrakhan, expressed multiple conspiracy theories, and described Jews as a wicked, lying, and arrogant people. Just last week, Muhammad claimed that in addition to controlling the entertainment business and banking, Jews control drugs, pedophilia, and pornography. So, um, Scientology finds itself now in an interesting place. Because they have positioned themselves as an interfaith group who, who preaches human rights, tolerance, dignity, compassion, and understanding. And yet they're allied with a group that has as its main line, headline feature, <laughs> bigotry, racism, and intolerance. So only in the minds of cult members could this sort of Contradict, contradictory belief system and insane dogma make any kind of sense. I mean, you really got to strain with the cognitive dissonance in order for this stuff to make sense. But that's what Scientologists are capable of. Actually, that's what any human being is capable of if they believe strong enough in whatever it is that, you know, whatever group it is that they're trying to be part of. So um, the rest of the world is looking at this and thinking, this is nuts. And now that you know the things I've laid out in this podcast, you can see how it's even nuttier than you probably than you already thought it was at the beginning of this. These two groups do not belong together. They are destructive cults that are just ruining people's lives, take in very, very gullible people, and give them this insane, logically inconsistent, and scientifically completely nuts dogma tell them this is the way the world actually works and tell them that this is how they have to act and this is how they have to speak and this is how they have to think in order to be good people, righteous people, and people who are going to survive into eternity forever as the uh, holy, righteous people that they naturally are. I mean, this is the message of cults, right? So um, I don't know that this that this relationship is meant to last forever. The nation is... Uh, allied itself with other groups in the past and has broken away from them. We'll see what happens with this one. I'm still convinced personally that there's some kind of financial motivation underlying all of this that none of us know about yet or even can know about because we don't have access to the information we would need. But, um, but we'll see. We'll see how this pans out. I am curious to see as pressure mounts on these two groups which of them is going to break away from the other first or start naysaying or decrying or denying the connection. I think that would be a beautiful thing. I would love to see something like that happen because it would help depower both of these groups. These two groups need to be depowered. They are destructive cults. They are not just odd belief systems. And so now that you know all of this, I hope that it helps you to 
promote the, the truth about these groups and the unholy alliance that exists, and um, and that we can um, move forward to, you know, make the world truly a better place, a more compassionate, tolerant place by getting rid of Scientology and getting rid of the Nation of Islam. These two groups are not constructive activities and they should not be supported or endorsed in any way. Thank you very much for listening and coming around uh, to my podcast. If you find my podcast of interest, informative, educational, and entertaining, please consider supporting me through Patreon. Um, Tis the season for wonderful support to come my way uh, for my channel, of course. So I would thank you very, very much for any support you can throw my way. It all helps, keeps the lights on, keep a roof over my head, and allows me to do the research I'm doing here so I can present this to you. With all that being said, I welcome any questions, comments, or feedback you have, good, bad, or sideways. Leave it in the comments section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. Again, thank you, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.